Hey, good morning, everybody. It is good um, to be with everybody again. It's good to see everybody. This is fun. It's a little bit of a stressful morning here. I was like pinch hitting on guitar because we had somebody call out sick. And so I'm feeling like super not focused. So we're just going to jump in. That's why you write all the things down. That's what I found. It's the beauty of it. I wanted to start by saying something, maybe that's kind of a non sequitur, but it gets us where we're going. Adnan Sayed is out of prison. Did you know that? Yeah. Did you hear about this over the past week? Did a quick show of hands, how many of you listened to Serial, the This American Life spinoff podcast? Yeah. That podcast, I'm going to make all of you feel not great about yourselves, that podcast was released in 2014. That was eight years ago, if you can believe it. And it's probably turned out to be like the ground zero, right, for both our national podcasting obsession. That was like the first podcast I particularly remember like consuming. I was on a road trip with somewhere for some reason. And I remember like listening to the whole thing. And I think not only did it kind of kickstart the podcast obsession, it also helped kickstart like the true crime podcast obsession, which I'm fully involved in. Like I'm a big fan of all of these. If you name it, don't do it. We could do this game where you name them and I tell you we listen to them. We'll do that later. Anyways, this past Monday, as it sounds like a bunch of you guys know, in a courtroom in Baltimore, a judge granted state prosecutors' request to vacate Adnan Sayed's conviction due to a lack of compelling evidence. If you followed the case, this isn't particularly surprising, but what is surprising, I think, is that Sayed spent 14 years in prison before the serial podcast came out and brought national attention to his case, and since then, it's taken eight more years for him to be freed. He was 19 when he was convicted. He's currently 42. I have no idea if he is a good person or not. I have no idea whether he did the thing that he was accused of or not. But I'm glad that he's no longer in prison. And this is a strange way to start a sermon, I know, perhaps. But here's why I'm bringing it up. I had a hunch that a good number of you would know his name. And I had that hunch because I know that many of us think, many of the people in this church think a lot about justice in our world and about injustice in our world. We think about where justice is lacking. We think about where it's ignored. We think about where it's distorted. Adnan's case, when we, many of us found out about it, all the way back in 2014, resonated, I think, because it contained within it many of the things that we already sensed and already cared about. We were ready as a, as a culture for a story about the cost of racism and bigotry and criminal, criminal investigations. We were interested. We were ready for a story about the, the deep and institutional problems in the criminal justice system or about how the eagerness to prosecute one person for the wrong reasons can lead to people who ought to be prosecuted for the right reasons, avoiding accountability. And for many of us, the reasons that we care about these things, the reasons that we care so much about issues of injustice are tied deeply to our Christian faith. We know what the Bible says about things like caring for the poor, sitting with people who are in prison, or resisting corruption or institutional bias and individual discrimination. We follow a Jesus who is endlessly patient and compassionate towards people who are suffering and outcast, and we long, we long for more of that empathy in our world today. And all that stuff is good. But as natural as that might seem to you, is a far cry from our reputation as members of a Christian church, right? From the outside, I think we're rarely seen as a group of people who are known for like our compassion or our longing for mercy 
in the world. Too often, Christian voices are the, among the most are, are who got tongue tied. Are among those who are most loudly calling for vengeance and harshness. And in our specific community, this is a real problem, because many of the people around us, including many of those people who listened to Serial eight years ago, many of the people in this county, they're looking for something different. They're looking for a church who shares their longing for justice, and they're struggling to find one. I think that we can be that church, but I also think if you're one of those people who's like, this is like the sermon where we get to pat ourselves on the back, no, no, I don't think we're there yet. To frame our conversation today, we're currently in the third week of our four-week series called A Church Four. And in this series, we're looking at the fears and the needs and the hopes of the people around us that we can be increasingly intentional as a church community about how we actually minister to our real neighbors. In week one, I put little signs up because Claire told you guys we're doing the signs later, so I made some. Look at this handwriting. You can tell I was a teacher once, right? That's pretty good. Anyways, yeah, in week one, we talked about deconstruction. In week two, we talked about our current epidemic of loneliness. And then this week, we're talking about something that's near and dear to the hearts of many, many of our neighbors, and that is that deep longing for a more compassionate and a more fair and a more hopeful world. And at first glance, right, this should be a pretty straightforward sermon, right? Like, what people want is something that our God is eager to provide and has made a habit of providing since there have been people. There can be no question that the God of the Bible loves justice and that the God of the Bible is at work always to bring justice about. As we talked about last week, the world that we're all living in, it got real dramatic when the air conditioning cut off. Did you guys hear that? It's made me not comfortable. Anyways, as we talked about last week, the world that this God that we serve created, that world was good. And the deep needs of all the creatures living here were of incredible concern to him. So much so that that God committed himself to seeing all of the needs of all of the creatures met. And notably, this commitment to meeting those needs didn't stop when sin entered the picture through the the self-centeredness and the short-sightedness of human beings. And instead, what happened in the story we looked at last week is that that action revealed God's heart and his plan for restoring things to their good state. We saw last week that because God loves people, because he loves people, he's merciful towards them. And he refuses to leave them alone with the consequences of their actions. And at the same time, because God loves justice, he can't just let things slide. And he promises to lead people back from sin into goodness again. The story, that story is the story that is underneath everything that follows. God is working, not just to restore order, which is something he could do with a snap of his fingers, right? It would be no problem for God to restore order. But to lead people back to a place where they desire that order. That's what we're all waiting on. That's why this is taking so long. Because our God isn't a finger snapping to fix all the problems, God. He wants you and me and everybody to have our hearts changed to be people after his own heart. So those of us who are seeking to follow after a God like that should 
you'd think, be people who share his passions, particularly his love for mercy, as well as his passion for seeing people's hearts change. The character he's showing us ought to be reflected in us towards others. If our neighbors long for justice, as many of them do, they should be able to expect church people to be standing alongside them at a rally or a neighborhood outreach or when they're building a community playground. It should be the easiest thing to assume. Whatever you're doing, Christians will show up. Christian voices should also be out there with them, calling for mercy, naming injustice when we see it, advocating for a future that is better than the world we're living in now. But the truth is that's not something that our neighbors can consistently count on. And just as in previous weeks, we're going to begin this week by looking at and hopefully repenting of the ways that we struggle to be the church we ought to be, and then look at how we can come together to grow into the church that we're made to be. Now, the first reason people who long for justice in our community have a hard time counting on the church is for this reason, because we're not there for the right reasons. Because we're not there for the right reasons. I should have given air quotes so you could hear that. For the podcast, that's, there's air quotes on it, right? We're not there for the right reasons. What I mean by that is that sometimes we're anxious or fearful about standing beside people in our community who may in fact be guilty or otherwise in the wrong. To justify this, we cling to verses in scripture like Ephesians 5, which says, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. We hang on to a verse like 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which says this, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. You've heard this, I bet. In both of these instances, we have these moments where the Apostle Paul is talking to church communities, and he seems to be instructing them to avoid people who are guilty of certain kinds of offenses, and even if they're church members who are guilty of certain kinds of offenses, to cast them out from the community. I'm moving quickly this morning, but I need to ask, have you seen those verses at work in a church before? or among Christians, because there's, it's okay if you have, because there's a logic to them. If we want to stand up for real justice, we sometimes tell ourselves, we have to draw some hard lines around who we associate with. It makes a certain kind of sense. I have compassion for that point of view, I really do. I understand why we sometimes don't want to stand up next to folks who are not actually innocent. But we need to be challenged I think on whether or not that position truly communicates a Christ-like gospel. Because there's a counterpoint in Scripture too. And I think it has quite a bit of weight. After all, it's also Paul, the same Paul who tells us those other things, who's going to condemn Peter's legalism while the disciple, or when that disciple uses Old Testament guidelines about cleanliness to justify avoiding Gentiles at a dinner in Antioch. Same Paul. And even more, we should remember the example that the guy everybody's following here, Jesus, sets for himself and sets for us, right? When he chooses to dine with sinners and thieves over the religious elite of his day. Not just misidentified ones or ones that were actually innocent or who like were good people underneath. No, 
the regular old tax collecting, you know, people. When those same religious leaders that Jesus chose to dine with the other people, when those same religious leaders would bring in scripture, when they bring a woman who's guilty of adultery to a village center, right, in order to legally stone her to death, according to the laws that everybody's agreed to follow, Jesus intercedes for her. And you know that story. And what I want you to recall is that he never questions whether she's guilty. He assumes it. And yet he pushes those good religious people towards mercy instead. And of course, we're missing the obvious thing, right? Where in the end does Jesus end up? It's hard to imagine a clearer picture of his willingness to show solidarity with the guilty than his choice to go to the cross and die in between two thieves. So let's remind ourselves of how that story goes, right? This is from Luke 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If we let even what can feel like the right reasons keep us from standing beside those who are suffering, regardless of how justly, we are choosing to follow the paths of Jesus' enemies over the path of Jesus himself. A church for people who long for justice has to be a church that chooses solidarity and mercy and friendship. Over the last three years, this church has done important work to help free good medical debt in our city and around the country. We played a part, little as we are, and forgiving more than $10 million of debt. Most of you participated in that. You've heard the story a bunch of times. And I think I've even shared this part of it, but it's relevant today. During that time when we were doing all the debt relief work, I talked, I had the opportunity to talk with dozens and dozens of pastors from much bigger churches than ours all around the country to encourage them to do the same thing, to start the same kind of programs where they live. And do you know the most common question that I got from all of those pastors was, I bet I got it from 70% of the pastors that I ever talked to. The question was, how can we make sure the money doesn't forgive debt that comes from abortion? Friends, I don't know how you feel about that issue, but as I told a bunch of those pastors, I am personally glad that Jesus forgives all of my mistakes and not just my most presentable ones. A church for people who long for justice cannot allow legalism or self-righteousness or even fear from keeping us, or we cannot allow that to keep us from showing up. We just can't. If we're going to radically be different, that's how you do it. The second reason. You're still all supposed to be nodding because you're mostly like, I'm with you on that. Here's where you're not going to be with me. The second reason people who long for justice in our community have a hard time counting on the church is because we are there for the wrong reasons. This is where I'm looking in a mirror and where I think a lot of you will be too. Up until 
Well, I know you, right? And the reason is because I know you. You're socially active, justice-loving people for the most part. I see, I follow, I, I'm quiet. I'm like a ghost on Facebook. Like I, I surf and I like browse and I look just to see what y'all are up to. And to see what you are sharing and shame. But nonetheless, I know that most of you are socially active, justice-loving people. You don't need anybody to convince you that there are real problems in our city from the affordable crowd the affordable housing crisis that's going on here to racial discrimination and marginalization to this tremendous disparity between good and bad public schools around here. You get it and you care about people of Annapolis, I know. But sometimes when we advocate for even deeply important causes in our community, our motivation ends up having a lot more to do with wanting to be good people than it does loving our actual neighbors. Let me tell you about a moment when this started weighing on me. In the summer of 2020, in the midst of a devastating pandemic, we all remember, we're all still sort of there, our community joined communities all across the country, and I mean Annapolis joined cities and, and communities all around the country in expressing in its own ways outrage over the death in police custody of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You guys remember all this too. His death prompted a national reckoning and conversations about racial bias and injustice and policing and all of that big swirl of stuff, as you recall, came to be known as the Black Lives Matter movement. And many people, including people here in our church, were stirred by that movement into action. And then here in Annapolis, there were several marches and protests in, that, in those early summer months, many of which were supported by our own local police department, which was nice. And so leading all of this kind of led up to our city's first celebration of the Juneteenth holiday in 2020. So it was like a string for about five weeks. There were a lot of marches and protests. Everybody was involved. They were very peaceful. And like, it was, it was good. My family and I went to several of those marches. And I did that in walking with other clergy who we were all kind of trying to communicate and seek solidarity among one another as we were trying to be present and advocating for justice in our community. And I remember as I'm walking at a lot of these things, hanging out with other pastors of other churches, I remember there were many conversations among us about that first point from this morning, about what is the right place of the church in a moment like this. We decided together that the place for the church was standing in solidarity with people who are angry and grieving. And I still think that was the right decision for us as a group of pastors to make. But during that season, something started to nag at me there were a lot of folks who were shouting all the right things on, I say right things in air quotes too, like they're shouting all the right things on social media, but who weren't there with their actual neighbors. And then even more troublingly, there were a lot of folks, a lot of folks that looked like me, who were showing up at these events and walking together in what was often a truly ironic display of segregation in the midst of a call for unity. When I saw, or when I say, that we have to be wary of being there for the wrong reasons, what I mean is this. Loving justice isn't abstract. We don't advocate for causes. We advocate for people, real people who we know and love and are there for, even after the movements 
come and go or fade away. That next summer here in Annapolis, a tornado came through. Do you remember this? That tornado devastated a majority black neighborhood in parole. Our church made efforts to participate in the cleanup. The turnout for that paled in comparison to the events of the summer before. What happened? Where did we all go? Where did we all go? When we st- Here's what happened, right? When we stand up for causes over people, we reveal that our actual heart is still fixed on ourselves. We want to be right. We think of ourselves as good people because we support these noble causes or the causes we decide are noble. But if our motivations don't start with actual compassion, with an actual willingness to know and love our actual neighbors, we will not stick things out when the spotlight is off. You won't. You can't will yourself into doing it. It's the natural way of things if what you're into is letting people see that you have the right ideas about things, the popular ideas about things. But what will make you stick is when you're not thinking about what people will think of you, but you're thinking about your friend who you know, whose house just got blown up by a tornado. You'll show up for your friend. I lost my place because I rambled there for a minute. The good news is this. The good news is that the God who loves us enough to show us mercy, the God who loves his creation enough to bring it back to justice, which is to say, to bring us back to the thing we were made for and to be the people we were made to be. The God who cares about us in that kind of a way also shows us an answer for how we stand up for people for the right reasons. When Jesus arrived, in Israel. You guys know this story too. Israel had long convinced itself that what it needed was a warrior rather than yet another shepherd. Lots of shepherds in Israel, not a lot of warriors. But the prophecies they were clinging to actually told them to be looking for something else altogether. God had told them through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus shows up this. He had said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. We talk about this at Christmas all the time. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. God's answer begins with a willingness to condescend, to come down to where we are. And this doesn't happen because God forgets who he is and where he belongs. It happens because God remembers who we are, and who we're meant to be. And he loves justice. Justice for creation isn't about punishing us for evil. It is about returning us to good. It's about returning us to our right design because that design is cracked and distorted right now in the world. Because it is, we have to be courageous in our imagination for it. We have to reach for it. God shows us how by seeing in us what we are struggling to see in ourselves, which is that we're loved. We reach for this 
in community by letting that love and security that God is reminding us that we have give us the vision to see the love and security that other people deserve too. Doing that, if that's what we mean when we talk about pursuing justice, doing that cannot be abstract. It doesn't fall into the abstraction pit because it can only ever be personal because it's attached to people. People aren't causes. They're individuals who are unfathomably loved by the God of the whole universe, even when they feel like they don't deserve that love, or even when they're guilty of doing something bad, or even when they're struggling to see any value in themselves. And a church after God's own heart is a church that is committed to seeing, forgiving, standing alongside, and believing in our human neighbors. So if that's what we are trying to become ourselves, what can we do? According to another prophet in the Old Testament, according to Micah, and another verse that I know you've heard, God has shown us, O mortals, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Micah 6.8 asks. And the answer is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. We act justly when we remember what creation is made for, when we remember what is justice, when we remember God's intent for us, and then we do what we can to work that out in our world. In our community, that can look like voting, it can look like protesting, it can look like volunteering, it can look like feeding the hungry. What matters is that, what, is that we are a community pursuing justice, pursuing seeing people rightly, pursuing rightness and goodness as a community in all the ways that are open to us, or ways that we can, by God's grace, open. That's how we act justly. We love mercy by insisting on the worth and the value of those who are guilty. In doing this, we live out the example of God in his treatment of Adam and Eve back in the garden, as well as the example of Jesus in his treatment of the thief that's with him on the cross. We say to others that even though their mistakes have led to brokenness in their lives, they are not worthless. Even more than that, they are, even in that moment, worthy of love and fair treatment. We do this in small ways here as a church family by forgiving each other, right? By trying our best to love each other, even though we screw that up all the time. But we also as a church need to grow in the ways that we do this for our neighbors. One thing that is overdue in, at Revolution is a ministry for the jail on Jennifer Road. We've been here 12 years and we've never had a ministry in that jail. Shame on us. There are people God values sitting right now in a place that is trying to convince them that they're worthless. We can show them that that is a lie. I don't know how we're going to do this and I can't do it alone or I would have by now, but... You know, like I say shame on us, I really mean shame on me. It's been 12 years, haven't gotten that thing going. I need your help. I need your help. I'm saying that we need to act. 
And what about that last thing, right? What about walking humbly with our God? How do we walk humbly with our God? We do this by listening to who he keeps saying we are. We don't let arrogance convince us that his opinion of us doesn't matter. We don't let fear convince us that we're not yet worthy of his attention, that we have to earn it somehow. We strive to live day in and day out in the truth that the God of the universe wants to go for a walk with us. That's what he's wanted from the beginning. We're not a cause for him. We are his children who he loves. And in his relationship with us, he is showing us how we can relate to others. And in his relationship with us, he's reminding us that he is now and he always will be here with us. He'll be with us.